This is Michael Cohen, and you're listening to the Mea Culpa Podcast. As you've heard me say again and again, there's nothing guaranteed about our democracy. Two years ago, on January the 6th, our democracy was attacked. There's no other way of saying it. The U.S. Capitol was breached, which had never happened before in the history of the United States of America, even during the Civil War. A violent mob of insurrectionists assaulted law enforcement, vandalized sacred halls, hunted down elected officials, all for the purpose to attempt to overthrow the will of the people and usurp the peaceful transfer of power. President Biden marked the January 6th insurrection by praising we the people, saying in a speech at the Capitol that we did not flinch and that we prevailed. But have we? The Presidential Citizens Medal of Honor, given for exemplary service to the country and fellow citizens, was bestowed upon some of the heroes of January 6th. The President addressed those brave men and women, the nation and the families of the fallen, with humor, with kindness and compassion, projecting the kind of leadership that all Americans can be proud of, that all Americans should be proud of, no matter who you are or how you vote or how you believe. Joe Biden is the right man for this moment in history. So folks, these people and the people representing those who couldn't be here because they gave their lives for this, did is incredibly consequential. And that's not political talk, that's historical fact. These were the heroes the president honored for their service. Jocelyn Benson, the Michigan Secretary of State, Rusty Bowers, the former Speaker of the Arizona House. Harry Dunn, who I expect to come on the podcast very soon, of the United States Capitol Police. Caroline Edwards of the United States Capitol Police. Former D.C. Metropolitan Police Officer Michael Fanone. Lady Ruby Freeman, a Fulton County election worker, as well as her daughter, also a Fulton County election worker, Andrea Shea Moss. Sadly, both women are still being targeted by the former president. Also honored was former Philadelphia elections official Albert Schmidt, United States Capitol Police Officer Aquilino Gunnell, Quick Thinking Eugene Goodman of the United States Capitol Police, Daniel Hodges of the D.C. Metropolitan Police, and the now deceased U.S. Capitol Police Officer Howard Liebengood fallen Metropolitan Police Officer Jeffrey L. Smith, and Brian Sicknick, the Capitol Police Officer killed in the line of duty that day. As my people say, never again, never forget. I want to thank you all for your service, your strength, your courage, and that's a corny thing to say, but your patriotism. House Democrats lined up on the steps of the Capitol Friday to pay tribute to the officers that lost their lives due to the insurrection, and no surprise, not a single fucking Republican joined them. This was Hakeem Jeffries' first official act as minority leader of the House. As he spoke at that event, he reminded us again that the battle on the 6th was meant to stop the peaceful transfer of power plain and simple, and that while we prevailed two years ago, the plot to shut down democracy is still playing out. Look, look you know, Matt Gates pointing right now, uh, trying to make some sort of point to Kevin McCarthy. Uh, 
Yikes. I mean, wow. this doesn't, this, yeah, this, this, this looks like this a bit of a heated incredible. conversation. Yeah. This is an incredible moment. McCarthy is now directly engaging Matt Gates, and, and, you know, I'd love to get a lip reader in here, but he's got to be telling him in no uncertain terms, you are, you are screwing this for everybody. Yeah. You are, you are holding up the business of the entire United States House of Representatives based on what he's going to say is your ego. In a sad case of the apple not falling far from the tree, Mickey Winoff, the mother of Ashley Babbitt, showed up in D.C. on Friday to mark the occasion of the 6th, but was arrested for blocking traffic on the Capitol grounds. Ashley Babbitt, you may recall, was fatally shot and killed by Capitol Police during the insurrection while attempting to break into the chamber. Anyway, Whithoft was taken into custody, processed, and then released. But she came to the Capitol with a small but angry mob to raise a little more hell in honor of her daughter. I mean, I suppose that's what she was there for. Like Brian Sicknick, who died on that day, Ashley Babbitt is also a victim of Trump. Even though they may not acknowledge it, she is also a victim of Trump. Because without him, none of this shit would have ever happened. Babbitt was a 12-year Air Force veteran living in San Diego with her husband. Her family describes her as loving and says she was a staunch supporter of the president. She's my only granddaughter. Uh, I'm sorry. Her grandfather says Babbitt attended every Trump rally she could. Excellent patriot, an avid Donald Trump fan. Um, she served time in the military. Uh, she's passionate about everything, particularly Donald Trump for some reason. The U.S. Capitol Police officer who shot Babbitt is now on leave pending an investigation. However, Babbitt's family has recently filed a multi-million dollar lawsuit against Capitol Police for what they believe was Ashley's wrongful death. These are the same folks who are all for open carry and stand your ground. So why are they surprised when someone gets killed while breaking and entering? I mean, in all fairness, my heart goes out to them. But these are the same misguided people who tried to overthrow the government. I mean, I'm just saying. The ongoing repercussions of the insurrection caused by the MAGA Republicans and all of those who supported them is what Jeffries, what Biden and every other Democrat with a platform should be talking about all day, every day, until we prevail in the 2024 elections. I mean, we simply can't let up. And again, we can never forget. Show images of the chaos, constantly show those images, not just of the chaos, but of the destruction and the death, and remind the public that the insurrection isn't over. They are still making a mockery of our democracy, even right now. Well, it was quite a split screen, uh, seeing the people being honored, and then this is, I think, day four of, uh, the Chaos Caucus, it's watching those pictures in, in Randy's piece just brings it all back. And then you compare that to what we saw this week. Uh, a former Republican Speaker of the House, Anderson, I will let you guess which one, said to me this week as he watched what was going on with the Republican conference, quote, the suicide squad is locked in. It is like watching someone burn down their own house because the flames excite them. As we just saw all week long, Republicans have made it clear that plenty of them still stand against the peaceful transfer of power. 
and still denied the 2020 election results. Their fight now is with Kevin McCarthy, but it isn't going to end here. After days of embarrassment for U.S. Republicans, America has a new Speaker of the U.S. House of Representatives. Kevin McCarthy took the House's gavel despite concerted opposition from some hard right-wing representatives in his party. McCarthy was keen to thank the former president for his victory. I do want to especially thank uh, President Trump. I don't think you should anybody should doubt his influence. He was with me from the beginning. Somebody wrote the doubt of whether he was there, and he was all in. McCarthy told the press that he, and I quote, felt good after his first 13 or 14 losses and minced around like cock on walk through the whole damn thing. Okay, finally, on the 15th try, he made it. I mean, fake it till you make it. McCarthy's had to give the MAGA Matt Gates faction of his party immense power. Power that they will use to hold the House hostage. I mean, nay, the whole fucking country. Republicans did still manage to narrowly, as we have been observing this week, flip the House by the thinnest of margins, which is why we are now in our current predicament. The most extreme portion of the GOP conference are the key leverage point within that party. They control the party's fate. And in order to win, Kevin McCarthy has spent the week giving them everything they want. Now, I'm not sure which of the pundits said it, but there are some folks that don't want concessions. They just want power. They like holding hostages, feet to the fire, not for their constituents, but for the sheer pleasure of it. Kevin McCarthy walks off the floor. No, he's, he's talking. He's, I'm sorry, he walks up the floor, rather. Matt Gates, he needed him to vote yes, not present. He's trying to convince him. He appears to be trying to convince Matt Gates to vote yes and not present. Or Boebert. Also, right, he, or, if he could get Lauren Boebert to change yep. from present, or, yes, or one convince. Of the we haven't seen him doing this personally on the floor. He's obviously been doing it behind closed doors, but until this moment, we have seen his deputies do this. This is, this is it. I mean, this is do or die for him. In a tweet on Friday, Chris Murphy, the congressman from Connecticut, tweeted, and I quote, this is sort of the essence of the problem. Many House Republicans didn't run to govern. They ran to be part of a fucking reality TV show. Their goal is to create a shit show. Several believe that one earns the position of speaker by raising enormous sums of money, and there is no doubt that the individual that was nominated by Mr. Garcia is the LeBron James of special interest fundraising in this town. There is nobody better, but I would suggest that there are qualifications for speaker that are far more important. There are attributes that are far more important. Jim Jordan has those, and I am submitting his name. Michael Moore said earlier this week that he hates being asked to make predictions, but he's so often right that it's hard not to ask. Anyway, here's a Michael Moore prediction that I'm fairly sure will actually come to pass. He said, in essence, that due to attrition in prosecutions, Republicans will be dropping out before the end of the session and Democrats will ultimately re be running the House before it's over. Let's not forget that a lot of what's going on at the House involves Republican uh, congressional members who voted not to certify the election and many others who also sought pardons 
because they were that concerned with their conduct. It's going to be extremely important for the rule of law and for accountability that Jack Smith and his team hold to account not just the foot soldiers, not just the leaders in the White House, but congressional uh, uh, people who were complicit with what happened on January 6th. So here's an accountability watch. According to Bloomberg, attorneys working for Jack Smith's special counsel investigating Trump are poring over interviews and transcripts handed over to them by the January 6th committee. The committee wrapped up its probe just before the new session of Congress got underway, but there is speculation that it could be just a matter of weeks now before indictments come down in Trump land. And I don't believe the Department of Justice, or now Jack Smith, special counsel, who's been appointed to head up the criminal investigations into Donald Trump, I don't believe they're prepared to give our democracy away to Donald Trump or his ilk. I don't. So am I skeptical? Yes. Has justice taken far too long to come? Yes. Accountability should have come for Donald Trump and his criminal associates a long time ago. But just because it hasn't come yet doesn't mean it won't come. And let's all cross our fingers and hope that's true. There's still lots of testimony that hasn't been made public from White House aides who say Trump absolutely knew that he lost the election, but went ahead with his plot to overthrow the election anyway. Frankly, I find it frightening that one asshole can literally corrupt an entire system. Anyway, we've often spoken here about Trump's multi-pronged coup attempt, but that's just one aspect of Smith's investigation. He's also been tasked with getting the goods on the Mar-a-Lardo documents case, which appears to be proceeding at a clip. Tell us more about Jack Smith, all of a sudden sort of the world's most interesting man. Yeah, when I was making calls to sources today on the former president's legal team, I got a lot of, wait, who? Uh, and then I sent, uh, sent the biography. I haven't gotten too many reactions yet, but it's interesting to look at his biography. This is someone who's been a long time a prosecutor, worked in various offices for the Justice Department across the country also led the division of the Justice Department that focuses and specializes in prosecuting public officials who are accused of corruption. And he was most recently chief prosecutor at the Special Court of The Hague. And we know from sources that they considered many different people for this potential assignment. They were looking for someone that they thought could ultimately withstand partisan critiques. And John, of course, we know those are coming. Certainly, I mean, talk is cheap, but Jack Smith seems to be a man of action, and he's clearly not afraid of Trump and his allies. Jack Smith, ladies and gentlemen, prosecutes war criminals in The Hague. Donald Trump should be a piece of cake. I say, sh I say should, because with Trump you never fucking know, but things are moving in the right direction, and I can only say thank God and finally. But in reality, Biden is somehow spent two years scoring one political win after another and bucking historical trends while Republicans just eat each other alive. Joe Biden might secretly be a political mastermind who's just pretending to be old and confused. He's basically President Doubtfire. And while Republicans were dithering around in the White House, deciding just how badly they're gonna fuck themselves, the president has decided to take on the border crisis all by himself. 
confronting the mounting pressure at the southern border. On Thursday, the Biden administration announced a far-reaching crackdown on people who seek refuge at the border with Mexico. They are expected to dramatically expand restrictions on asylum, all in an effort to discourage migrants from crossing into the United States. Now, uh, these actions alone that I'm going to announce today aren't going to fix our entire immigration system, but they can help us a good deal in better managing what is a difficult challenge. On my first day in office, some of you may recall, cover this area, you cover it well, I sent Congress a comprehensive piece of legislation that would completely overhaul what has been a broken immigration system for a long time. Cracking down on illegal immigration, strengthening legal immigration, and protecting dreamers, those who with temporary protective status, friend farm workers, who all are part of the fabric of our nation. But congressional Republicans have refused to consider my comprehensive plan. And they rejected my uh, recent request for an additional $3.5 billion. The plan is to deny people from Cuba, from Nicaragua, Venezuela, and Haiti the chance to apply for asylum if they cross the Mexican border without authorization between official ports of entry. The concession is that as many as 30,000 people per month from those four countries would be given the chance to migrate legally to the United States, but only if they have the means to afford a plane ticket, to get a sponsor, download an app, pass a background check, and meet other certain requirements. The president will be in El Paso on Sunday, and he's expected to announce new funding to help communities deal with the effects of the massive migration increase. It's about all the president can do on this on his own right now, and we just have to say, at least he's trying. Republicans refuse to take up the issue in any substantive way because they'd have to give up blaming Democrats if immigration was actually fixed. But it's a problem with no end in sight. Friends, it has been a problem for five fucking decades already. I mean, you'd have to fix the whole world if you want to keep people in their home countries and not seeking asylum in ours. We should be grateful for what we've got, and good luck, and Godspeed to those without. God bless America, land that I love. And now for the main event. We have a really special guest on the show this week. The legendary actor, comedian, director, and producer. The one and only, a guy who I've just looked up to my whole life, Henry Winkler. I suppose he's best known for his iconic turn as the Fonz on Happy Days, or more recently, for his Emmy-nominated role on the hit comedy, Barry, playing beloved acting teacher, Gene Kosinou. And before that, he was a staple on Arrested Development. Hank Zipser and Winkler even appeared as himself on BoJack Horseman. I mean, all told, Winkler's accolades include a Primetime Emmy, two Daytime Emmys, two Golden Globe Awards, and a Critics' Choice Award. I mean, seriously, not bad. Not bad for the fact that he's just a Yale School of Drama graduate and his acting career literally spans six decades. He has performed in just about every genre, in both dramatic and comedic roles, in film, television, and as well on stage. 
Though one might say he is the quintessential character actor, he's done several pictures with his buddy Adam Sandler, including Little Nicky and Don't Mess With The Zohan, and he's continued to collaborate with his Happy Days cohort, Ron Howard. And all of this is just the tip of the iceberg in his vast career. Journalist Michael Schneider said recently that the rumors are true. Winkler is one of the nicest, most genuine men in all of Hollywood. So without further ado, let's go now to my conversation with Henry Winkler. Okay, so I'm honored to have you. I have with me today Henry Winkler. I could not be more thankful to have you here on Mea Culpa, like what I do with all of my guests. We just, we have a lot to talk about and an hour goes by real quick. So I'm going to jump straight into it. Okay, but let me just say this before you start. Here's what is an amazing thing to me. The journey that you went through from the first time you came on the scene a few years ago into jail, into the humiliation, into the exoneration, into that here we are on your podcast is like a testament to will. The will to shine the light i'm you know, i think it's it's incredible. interesting and i th i thank you for that i do have to tell you as my parents and my grandparents would say in yiddish manasonum gesucht which translates means to my enemy should be so lucky to have my journey <laughs> i want to tell you something there are very there are not a lot of people that you would i'm sure and i don't know who you know but who we know who could have lived it and come out the other side. I mean, come on, Michael, that is like amazing. I'll tell you what the connection we have. I lived at the Regency when I did my Broadway play. Um, I lived there for a long time, a year. Yeah, it's a great, it's a great place. And by the way, I saw you in that play. Uh, but more importantly, Yes. I've, I've obviously, like everybody else, we followed your career all the way going back to the early 70s, yes. right? Um, which is a testament to you. But I do want to congratulate you on your hit show, Barry. Uh, mm -hmm. I mean, your character is, I mean, he's brilliantly funny. And at the same time, he's sort of this, um, he's poignant and sad, right? But that's real life, don't you think? Oh, my and, God. Absolutely. I'm I mean, that's, that's real life. And but do you, you know mind what? me asking you, no, how did you get that role? And how do you prepare to play someone like Gene Cosineau, right? This pompous acting teacher with a heart of gold. I'll tell you exactly. I'll tell you exactly. Number one, I auditioned. I auditioned for Bill Hader twice. I auditioned for Alec Berg um, once. Both men are are just brilliant uh, at what they do. They, You know, if it's not on the page... It ain't on the stage. And these guys and their friends wrote some unbelievable stuff for Gene Cousineau. So that's number one. Number two, my son directed me in my audition for Bill Hader. And he is a wonderful young director. Uh, number three, I know that I could be a good teacher. And so I started there, and then you add on the conditions of this egocentric, crazy person 
who has compassion but very little talent. I know several people that's like, you know, speaking of people who we both, <laughs> speaking of people who we actually both know, you know, I used to be friendly with Scott Bayo for many, oh. many years. In now. fact, I'm the dope who got Scott involved with Trump. Oh, um, wow. And I feel very bad about, about it. Um, I don't know why he's become such a Trump lover, uh, especially in light of all of the things that are going on. I still, I still like him. Uh, I haven't seen him in many, many years. In fact, Scott and I and a bunch of our mutual friends, we all went to Hugh Hefner's 70th birthday party, uh, wow. where we had, yeah, we had a blast. And, you know, I saw him uh, a couple other times when I was there in Los Angeles. Right. Um, why he's become a, a fan, I have absolutely no idea. But, you know, you and I have a lot actually in Let common. me just say this about Scott. Scott, when Ron Howard decided he was going to leave Happy Days uh, to become a director, Scott Baio, uh took the plate, uh, stepped up, and hit a home run. So he is he is a member of my family, even yes. though we absolutely do not agree on his politics or my politics. I mean, it's like like another planet, but he is um, he's a member of our family, and I love him. Yeah, and and I used to have we used to have great times. Great I mean, time. he is funny. He's great. Yeah. Um, and I just, I, I feel, I feel bad. The same thing was with my relationship with John Voigt. I was very friendly with John Voigt. And at the end of the day, it's hard for me to imagine that he, as well as Scott, that they just jumped into this cult of Trump and they just don't see, you know, the damage that's being caused, you know, every single day by this you Mandarin Mussolini. <laughs> I, I read once that there is a completely different heat signature on the uh, conservative brain and the liberal brain. Um, so maybe it has to do with that, that they uh, they felt very comfortable in that autocratic um, way of life. However, it would come eventually, if, if that succeeds, it will come to all those people and bite them in the tush. Yeah, and the tuchus. You can and you can say. Tuchus. By the way, just so you understand, this this podcast is rated E for explicit. We drop we drop every bomb here known to mankind, just okay. to let you know. So right. you, know, you feel you feel <laughs> whatever makes you happy, right? This won't be jumping the shark. I promise you on that Thank one. You. I mean, you know what? I'm one of the only actors in the world who's jumped the shark twice: once on Arrested Development and once on Happy Days. Yeah, so I, mean, look, I, I have no problem jumping the shark. Well, <laughs> which is good because we do that a lot here on Maya Culpa. But I do want to say, I mean, you know, talking about going back to Barry, 44 primetime Emmy Award nominations, right? And what what is it, like 17 wins or something like that? Yeah, it, yeah I'm telling you, it is, it's an amazing adventure. Uh, we just finished the fourth season. It'll be on in the spring. Uh, we were nominated for the Golden Globes. We were nominated for uh, the Critics' Choice Awards, uh, the L.A. Critics' Choice Awards, um, the Emmy. It's pretty wonderful. Yeah, I mean, you should be incredibly proud of you. I mean, you've you've been working nonstop, right, since 1974. What was the first? I, I forget the name of it. Um, 
the name of the movie that you were in in 74, right? Wait, was that, uh, it was either the Lords of Flatbush. Lords of Flatbush. With Sly yeah. Stallone. I just talked to Sly yesterday, uh, as a matter of fact, because I really enjoy uh, Tulsa King. Uh, Me too. Uh, I really, I mean, I, he's come back with guns a-blazing, no pun intended. I mean, first of all, he looks fantastic. He and does. on top of that, his he, his role is just so funny. It's it's almost like a comedy um, of The yeah. Sopranos. I, I love it. I, I have to be honest with you. I really do. I think Stallone is the one of the most underrated geniuses, I think, that's out there. Think about it. Right? You know why? From, Rock, from Rocky... Yeah. Which yeah. he wrote. What then? You have Creed thereafter. There's like, and then on top of that, you had um, First, First Blood. Blood. You had Rambo. Rambo. Uh, I mean, this guy has created some of the most iconic and memorable um, movies when that I, are out there. When I, when I first met him on the Lords of Flatbush. Uh, we went to his apartment, uh, his first wife, Sasha, and this gigantic bast, uh, 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 master bull, whatever it was, mastiff, uh, massive mastiff, and it drooled. You had to wear flippers to walk into his apartment, but he would paint the windows black because he didn't want to be influenced by whether it was day or night. Because he is such a, um, uh, a, a, a tremendous, prolific writer. Winter mornings are brutal. So here's my tip for tackling the day in comfort. Grab new Tommy John loungewear and take cozy wherever you go. When you start the year in Tommy John, you're that much more comfortable. So you can do everything better. Tommy John loungewear, pajamas, and underwear have dozens of comfort innovations, like luxuriously soft tri-blend and micro-modal fabrics with four-way stretch. And no lint balls or fuzz, ever. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, people love Tommy John. That's why Tommy John doesn't have customers. They have fanatics like me. Like this Tommy John fanatic who raves, and I quote, I bought one pair of loungewear, and after wearing them for two days, got all the other colors available. The only place I don't wear them is in the shower. Look, I bought the Tommy John loungewear as well, and I walk around my apartment with it all day, and my Tommy John underwear, there's nothing better. And that's why I love wearing my Tommy John all throughout the day because it makes me feel great and you should get Tommy John too. Plus, it's all backed by Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or it's free guarantee. So get 20% off your first order right now at TommyJohn.com slash Cohen. That's 20% off right now at TommyJohn.com slash Cohen. See site for details. But, you know, yeah. one of the things that I was saying, you know, to you is that you and I actually have a lot of things in common. First of all, we're both New Yorkers. Yes. And love New um, York. your, yeah, your parents, um, Holocaust survivors. Yes. My father, a Holocaust survivor from Poland. Yours from Germany. From Germany. Um, they escaped to America in 1939. Yes. If I'm not mistaken, right on a work visa. 
That's right. For only six weeks. And then my dad wrote President Roosevelt um, all the time saying, can I please have an extension? And uh, thank God they they were able to get one or I wouldn't be here. Uh, you know, if you watch the documentary by Ken Burns, America and the Holocaust, mm-hmm. uh, you know, America was not welcoming the way they are not of uh, all of the the people from South America and south of the border. That's the way that America was to the uh, the Jews from Europe. Right. Unfortunately, my father didn't have it uh, as easy as that. He was part of the Uberkinder. And, um, you know, ultimately um, they were freed from an internment camp uh, wow. somehow. You know, and yeah, he was from the area called um, Bochnia, which is in Poland, right outside of Krakow. But then um, your family became members of um, Habonim congregation in New, in New York City. They Did you were, grow up Orthodox? They were, founding, they were founding members. When I was growing up, our uh, synagogue was the second floor of a, an office building with folding chairs. And then they opened Habonim on 66th Street between Broadway and Central Park West. It's now closed because there were not enough congregants. But I was bar mitzvahed there at Habonim and married there at Habonim. Now it's that's an Orthodox uh, congregation, no, no, correct? No, it was con- it was uh, c- light conservative. Uh, interesting, because I actually grew up Orthodox, you know, with oh, a yarmulke wow. and sitzit. Oh yeah, I mean, I <laughs> people are like, get the heck out of here! And like, no, it's true. I did. I went to Hillel in the five towns in in Lawrence. Um, I know. Oh, tell me God. if you- I, I know those ladies from the five towns. Beautiful girls uh, from Emerson College. A lot of. Girls from the five towns, Lawrence and all those places. That's where I that's where I grew up in Lawrence. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. if you would tell tell us how has your heritage affected your life and your work? Because you've done some incredible things. And you know, many actors become uh typecast and so on. You actually didn't. Um, you know, you play multiple different roles and you know, some are funny, but some are know tough. The, here it is. The honest truth is uh, I was almost typecast. I thought I could beat the system, but there is no beating that system. Uh, people would say, you know, wow, he's great. He's funny. But hey, he was the Fonz. And it's sheer will. It, it, it is tenacity, which I know you understand, that got me. Uh, you know, that's why I started writing the, the children's books, because I couldn't get hired as a writer. So I thought, oh, this will be a time filler. So I met Lynn Oliver. We wrote 39 novels wow. from a kid who thought, I can't write one book. And then uh, it all of a sudden, it, the, the acting started again, and I uh, arrested development and uh, Parks and Rec, and uh, I, I just had a great time. And then Barry. Wow. Wow. Yeah. I mean, Barry is fantastic. But it's not just Barry. I mean, you know, one of my favorite movies is actually Waterboy. I mean, I just, you know, your role as Coach Klein, it's so funny, Thank right? You. I mean- it's just, it really is. It's just very, very funny. Now, but you Michael, don't have a Roy Orbison tattoo, do you? I do not because I would <laughs> scream like a nine-year-old girl. 
But if I saw a needle <laughs> coming at me that was vibrating, I would just pass out. But here's the thing. I got to work with all these amazing people. How I'm, uh, uh, Gary Marshall, a genius. Genius. Uh, Adam Sandler, a genius. Mm -hmm. Wes Craven, a genius. Um, uh, Michael Shore from uh, uh, Parks and Rec, brilliant. Um, in uh, and, and all that he has created. And then uh, Mitch Hurwitz from uh, uh, Development, uh, Arrested Development. I, I'm telling you, you, you knew you were in the presence of greatness. But then you also moved on, if I'm not mistaken, to producing and directing. Right. How did how did that switch? Because, you know, a lot of people do it now, but they didn't do it back when you were doing it. I'll tell you something. Need mother is the you know, the necessity of creativity is um, uh, is need. Um, I was sitting in my office at Paramount. I, I was not being hired. And my lawyer, Skip Rittenham, the third said, I think I'm going to start a company for you. I said, I can't do that. I, I failed every subject in school. He said, you'll learn. And MacGyver was the first show I ever sold. Wow. Wow. It's, I mean, I loved MacGyver too. I mean, it was, it, it's, it's actually, it's, I mean, it's just a brilliant show. And again, you know, I'm in awe because your career spans so many different aspects of the industry. You know what? I'm telling you. I, I did not want to be a flash in the pan. I, I did not uh, want to just do one, thank you, ma'am, and you're done. Uh, I, I just stayed at it with my will. Producing was, I thought, what, a time filler. Writing, a time filler. And they became part of my professional life. And you and I have that in common as well. This podcast was started while I was on home confinement out of necessity. I needed to keep my brain active. I needed to do something while I was here in my home. And, you know, I certainly I, I don't think you've read the second book yet, which both my books are New York Times bestseller. Disloyal was number one and Revenge was number eight. Um Revenge is an interesting book because you'll really get a full understanding of the charges that were brought against me, which aren't true. And yet I had no choice because of the power of government and the DOJ. In fact, the book, which is titled Revenge, how Donald Trump weaponized the United States Department of Justice against his critics. It is the playbook that everyone has to read in order to understand how an, how a democracy becomes an autocracy literally almost overnight. You take away people's First Amendment rights, like when they unconstitutionally remanded me back to prison because I wouldn't waive my First Amendment that I wouldn't we I wouldn't agree not to publish my first book, which, you know, was written while in Otisville. And that, again, out of necessity. But the, but the podcast for me was a way for me to tell the BOP, the DOJ, go fuck yourselves, all right? And I mean it, like right up your fucking ass. Go fuck yourself. You may have me in the confines of my home, but you can't confine my brain. You can't confine my voice. And in fact, since day number one, Maya Culpa has been a top 50 rated news podcast 
With now, we have over 67 million downloads. Okay, but let me ask you a question. How do you feel? I mean, really, how do you feel aside from the the anger that it created in you, the need it created in you? Do you are you not just filled with pride that you were able to take all of that and make this wonderfulness? I think I would need to spend a little more time with you, but the answer is sadly no. Um, this journey is all right. I'm going to interrupt you for a minute, Michael. I'm going to. I understand that. I understand the journey is like you're you you've got PSDT or whatever they call that, you know. And I I really get it, but I need you to take a moment to reflect because as an outsider looking in having no judgment about you as a human being just your 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 will and your journey you have got to write down the word pride in red and put it up on the mirror where you comb your hair so you can see it every day because you've got to get there you've got to get there eventually i am not joking you clearly don't know my wife then, because the second I would put a sticky up on a mirror is as fast as that thing would come down. <laughs> I understand. I understand. Yeah, I'm pretty sure I you understand. understand exactly where I'm going with that. I one. really do. No, I there's there is no sticky on my mirror. I <laughs> no stickies on I, mine either. I, Sometimes I, I feel like I live in a mausoleum. I put my yeah. shoes in, you know, by the by the guest bathroom. Why are you shoes in the guest bathroom? I'm yeah. like, because I'm gonna be going back out. I'm putting them in the closet where they belong. Yeah, I'm like, all right, hon, I'm only 56 years old. I'm gonna let, let me let me do exactly what you say. So we are, we are, <laughs> you are not alone. You are not alone. But I will say that you know what? Just write her a nice letter and say Henry Winkler said I should write the word pride and put it on my mirror, my mirror that I use. And would you make that concession, please? And I will um, close the milk in the refrigerator. Yeah. Well, I'm going to do that. And she'll probably call you later and yell at you, too. That's so, okay. <laughs> I'll have a chat with her. What is her name? Laura. Laura. That's my princess. I'll, I'll chat yeah. with Laura. You know, it's, it's, it's funny because I talk about this a lot um, on the show. I talk about the journey and what was done you know, to me, first, I shouldn't have been incarcerated. I shouldn't have been charged in the first place. You know, they charged me with tax evasion, misrepresentation to banks. Um, it's not true. I've never not paid taxes. I've never been audited in my life. This is the power of the DOJ. And hey, that like makes many people, <laughs> right? Yeah, that's for sure. Like many people who... <laughs> Like, you know, like many people who go ahead and have tragedy in their life, and I consider it to be a tragedy. I, I understand. You want to, you want to ensure that the pain that you lived with, that I live with every day, you know, the PTSD that I live with, and I don't get to sleep more than three, three and a half hours a night. Not, I was never a good sleeper, but I'm constantly woken up by living in my own head. And I live right. in my own head, not just when I'm awake, but when I'm asleep. And it's very painful, you know, right. very, very painful. But one of the things that I talk about is I will not, to the extent that I'm capable, I will not allow this to happen to anyone else. 
And that's why I become an advocate of prison reform, of justice reform. And I will go after the DOJ. People tell me you're so stupid. Step aside. Let somebody else, you know, enjoy the fight. No, it doesn't work that way. You know, I, you know what? I understand that. But look, that is the good that came out of this dreck of this ugliness. That is the good that you are now using your life for. Um, I, I have to say, I applaud that. I really do. Well, thank you. And I do obviously take that with um, uh, not a grain of salt. I, I take that as um, something very, very significant to me. You know, but what, I do want to say that. You know, what's that? You know, it just hit me when I did the Stephen Colbert show that that was the time that people said, oh, Henry Winkler should play Michael Cohn in the movie. And then he asked me to play you right then and there. I watched it. I was not very good, but I just I'm just remembering that. Oh, my God, here I am talking to you. And I was imitating you on a talk show. <laughs> Stephen Colbert is very funny. I, I I love his show. So look, Mea Culpa is a political show. So I yeah. hope that you don't mind if we talk a little bit more about, you know, about politics and so on, especially the parallels that we're seeing right now between America today and Nazi Germany, because I consider them to be real. Oh, you know what? I ha Let me tell you right now, Michael. I have said for a long time, uh, friends have said, what are you talking about? I feel the brown shirts breathing on my neck. Yeah, uh, I have felt it for a while. I, it is stunning to me. What, just take it for a minute. What have I done? I have lived my dream. I have had this wonderful um, career. I've made people laugh. I've met those people who told me I made you laugh. You you made me laugh. You made my grandma laugh. Uh, you made my brother laugh. And because I'm Jewish, there there there's some kind of demon. Well, that you know, like oh, you're different. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, and and the, the, it is crazy. And then the worst part is, you know, there are a lot of folks out there that feel that since Trump is out of office, that we can all just take a breath and we can all relax. But then again. You know, take Germany in the 30s. The problem didn't go away there either. Do you think that America is in the same boat now? You know what? I think that America has, I, I look at it this way. I'm going to New Orleans. I'm going to do the Comic-Con there for the first time in three years. Ooh. New Orleans was underwater a few years ago. People were on their roofs a few years ago, hoping to be saved. When somebody approached them with a boat, I don't think they said, hold it, don't come and save me. I got to know your religion first. Hold it, what's your skin color? Because, you know, if it's the wrong skin color, I'm going to stay here on the roof and, and like suffer and drown, it, it, you know. I don't understand how we don't get, if we don't work together, we will literally fall apart. You know, I said something so similar the other day on television when I, when I mentioned uh, 
post 9-11, I was in the 20s and I was walking up. I, my daughter was like five, six years old at the time. And obviously all the cell towers were down. So I walked from the 20s to the 70s to her school because right. I was afraid that I, yeah, nobody knew anything. Right. And as we were all walking, there were people handing out bottles of water and so on. And you take as many as you get to give somebody else. It's not for yourself. And as I was walking, people covered in soot in their face and you're handing them bottles of water and you use, I was using my tie, you know, to help to wipe their face because they were literally covered in soot. Absolutely. Yeah. I never asked any of them. Are you a Republican? Right. Are you a Democrat? Mm -hmm. Are you an independent? Right. Are you a neo-Nazi? Are you Jewish? Right. You know, are you Hindu? Are you Muslim? Are you Catholic? Who cares? We yeah, were sure. all American. And that's the thing that we have lost, which kind of brings me to my next question. You know, how do you think that Trumpism has changed the country? Because Trumpism definitely has. And do you see a way back from the influence of MAGA Republicans and the far right? You know, um, I, I think people should have their own point of view. But when they bleed over into wanting to do violence because you don't agree with them, that the country has got a problem. And there are two things. One is, I think the country does not honor education. And I don't mean going to an elite school. I mean just the education of teaching how a person, a person to think for themselves. That's number one. And number two is to, to teach them that we are not islands, that we are, we, we depend on each other. When I do my work, when I'm on the set, there are men and women who, if they were not there, if they were not doing what they were doing, television, a television show, a movie, a podcast, a radio show, a play would never be done, would never get made. We depend on each other. And that makes me so sad that you can so easily hate without just looking first at the other person and seeing their humanness. Yeah, it's... I, I, and I don't know how we get back, to be honest with you. And it's well, very it's sad. Like locus, you know, it, uh, I, I thought about that, too. Uh, it, it might be like a 17-year cycle that you go through this cycle and then people go back. Oh, wait a minute. The light is coming through. You know, it might you know, be yeah. uh, like the locust. If saving more and spending less is one of your top goals for 2023, then what are you doing? Why are you still paying insane amounts of money every single month for your phone bill? Right now, when you switch to Mint Mobile, you get their unlimited plan for 50% off. As the first company to sell premium wireless service online only, Mint Mobile lets you order from home and save a ton with plans starting at just $15 a month. Now, I've been using Mint Mobile long before this deal, and I have to say, it's the perfect time to switch. But you have to hurry, because this deal ends January 15th, and I was paying like close to $100 a month. Here, it's $15 a month. You're legitimately saving almost six, seven, eight hundred dollars $800, depending upon your usage. I mean, you could be saving with Mint Mobile's buy three months, get three months free deal. 
All right, you gotta do it now because the deal ends January 15th. Now Mint Mobile's kicking off the year with their best offer ever. Before January 15th, buy any three-month plan and get three months for free, even on their unlimited plan. By going online only and eliminating the traditional cost of retail, Mint Mobile passes the significant savings on to you. All plans come with unlimited talk and text, plus high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. So use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and switch easily in minutes with eSIM. Switch to Mint Mobile and get premium wireless service starting at just 15 bucks a month. So buy, listen folks, this is a call to action. Buy any three-month Mint Mobile plan and you'll get three more months free by going to mintmobile.com slash culpa. That's mintmobile.com slash culpa. Cut your wireless bill like I did to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash culpa. Hurry, the offer ends January 15th. I mean, have you watched like Handmaid's Tale and so on? Oh, do you, you haven't watched scary. it? I strongly recommend that you that you do. It is so scary. eerily similar to some of the things that are going on, especially now with the repealing of Roe versus Wade and, and so on. You know, circumstances change things. And the way that these MAGA um, Republicans, these Southern White Christian Coalition um, individuals believe that they have the right to involve themselves in your bedroom, it's it's absurd. I mean, yeah. for 50 years, it was stare decisis. All of a sudden, you know, you load up the Supreme Court, boom, it's over. And you know, because you, you've lived through it, you've seen America going through the civil, you know, civil rights era and so on. You know how hard it is to get certain rights. Once you lose them, it's nearly impossible to get them back. And that's you the know, big fear. And you know what? And, and even though, uh, uh, then I, maybe you hit on it. Maybe people have got to really taste. I always thought, you know, we're fighting, we're, we're on the right and we're fighting and we're going to win. And you're going to just, you know, you're going to feel the, the pain. What they don't understand is once their vote is no longer needed, they're going to be kicked to the curb. Yeah, I know what it feels like to get kicked to the curb. Absolutely. They're, <laughs> they're no longer uh, essential. Dude, you know, I have a boot print on my ass so, so long and wide. Nobody's it been looked, kicked to the curb like, like I have. That, it's like that poor young man who is accused of crimes in Brazil uh, who is uh, not yet seated. But the only reason that everybody has kept quiet is because he's a vote. That's oh, it. you're talking about George Santos. Oh, I mean, George come Santos on. Is like a, a garden tool. The, uh, the only reason that some of these people exist, the pedophile, the, 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 the craziness, is because they are a vote and they are now biting the person who thought they were going to vote for them in the tush. Right. So it's funny because, you know, when you look at like the current state of the House of Representatives, as an example, which he is now hard to imagine that 
he is going to be a member of Congress. Do you view it as political theater, right? Or the demolition of our democracy or maybe something in between? Because my understanding is he was sitting and he was lurking around Matt Gates, who's a creepy scumbag himself. And Matt Gates even told him to fuck off, you know, get away from me. You're breathing on top of me. I don't know who you are. So he introduced himself as Henry Winkler. He said, hey, I'm the Fonz. I mean, that's how fucked up this dude is. And yeah. this guy is going to be making decisions on behalf of people. I think well, it's crazy. That's the, that's the thing. I mean, I believe there is an entire constituency that is sitting there in horror <laughs> that they voted um, uh, for this human being. But you know what? Uh, uh, it is um, it is amazing to me. And maybe you have to go through it and uh, taste the pain of it in order to come out the other side, that maybe we are so divided, uh, something cataclysmic. I did a show called Sightings once with the story of all things paranormal, uh, produced it with Ann Daniel um, uh, for Fox. And we had um, uh, futurists on, and they said there is going to be a cataclysmic natural event that will cause the Mississippi River to um, uh, to become eight times the size. Beach property is going to start at Phoenix and Hollywood will be in Denver. And the, I think that is the only thing that is going to wake us up. Some cataclysmic event that will force us to need each other. Okay, but Henry, let's be serious about this. Every year, you mentioned Louisiana. That was Katrina. Then yeah. we had Sandy. Then we had Irma. Then we had, you know, um, you name it, right? How many, every single year, at least one, if not two or more, we have now these getting, massive, massive, of course. And yet the alt-right that far-right group refused to acknowledge climate change. Right. I mean, we have only one Earth to live on. Forget yep. about, you know, everybody's fighting now, you know, you're taking your Lipitor, your Crestor, you're taking, you know, all your medications so that, you know, you live longer. Everybody wants to live longer. And yet, right, what, listen, why not, right? But at the end of the day, I have grandchildren, Michael, I, I want to see them get older. They are the cutest. I'm sure they are. But my point is, if you have no place to live, what's the difference? Hey, if you have you, you don't have clean air to breathe, what's the difference? Period. Or, or do you remember? It was funny because it was in the movie Spaceballs. Remember where, you know, um, they would open up a can of like Perrier and it was air. Right. And you had to buy air the way that we buy water now. But what's right. going to happen too with the, with water? Right. We already know oh, come on. that uh, that is one thing that just completely makes me crazy. How is it in the greatest country in the world that we have for communities that don't have clean drinking water? That is insane. That is, you know, I, I have, I've whittled it down to this. We really, we, we worship at the altar of the wrong P that we have taken the population and diminished it and 
Profit has become our God, and that is going to destroy us all. Yeah, 100%. I mean, they're talking about how certain parts of Florida, Miami, will be underwater in like the next 15 years. So I said to a friend of mine who just bought a massive, massive home. He moved down there. You know, that's what the billionaires do in order to escape your tax. Has he invited you? Yes. Okay, fine. (laughs) I happen to like him. But I said to him, you know, you're investing all of this money down there. There's issues with getting insurance. On top of that, you have to get insurance if you're going to have any mortgage. Uh, So the price just becomes astronomical. But he bought a very expensive home. And I said, but you're in the flood area. You're in the area that they say that in 15 years, you're going to be underwater. So he goes, in 15 years, I'm going to be underground. So I turned around. And I said, yes, but that's not really the answer, right? I mean, don't you want to leave the house maybe to one of the kids or, you know, his wife is younger than he. So what about her? So he goes, no, nah, I don't really care. And that's Woo! the problem. It's the apathy of people. It's like it's 15 years down the road. You know, I don't even know whether or not we have the ability today, even with our technology and with science being as great as it is, I don't know whether we have the ability to reverse what damage that we've caused. You know what, then then to go completely the other direction from what you just said, um, I will say that uh, I will say live in the moment that the Eastern philosophy is uh, is like they've got it down, that you live in the moment you love every second you're breathing. Yeah. My father used to say that all the time. In fact, I really credit my father for the strength that, you know, that I have in being resilient after having the entire government of the United States, not once but twice, coming down on me with lies and, and bullshit and forcing me. Oh, then let me ask you a question. Let me ask you a question. I, you know, my dad said to me, he goes, you know, we're, we're survivors. Yeah. He goes, you know, Hashem has put you here for a reason. I yeah. don't know what it is, and I'm sorry that you're going through it. He goes, in fact, I wish it was someone else. He goes, but at the end of the day, we're survivors, and you're much stronger than you think that you are because you come from a family, a stock of survivors. Yeah. But you know what, though? The human being is, we are, we have like flesh. It's so, um, so ethereal almost, the flesh that holds us together. And yet the will that we have is so powerful. But uh, the question I wanted to ask you was how did your family take it? What was it that that they went through when you were going through? Was there, um, a sh- uh, were they ashamed? Were they, what were they? Not ashamed. No. In fact, to the contrary, no. none of wow. us ever put our head down. None, we held our chin up high because they know the truth. They know that I never committed tax evasion. They know that I never misrepresented anything to a bank. In fact, I have never owed a dollar to any institution or any individual ever in my entire life. I've never been laid on a payment in my entire life. These were just charges that if I didn't plead guilty, you'll read this one in the book, in in Revenge. And I do ask you to read it because I have other reasons I want you to read it. But what what you'll understand is... On a Friday at 5.30 p.m. was the very first time that we ever had a conversation with the Southern District of New York. 
And I wasn't allowed to be there. It was them with my attorney. And they told my attorney that if I don't come in and plead guilty on Monday at nine o'clock in the morning, they're filing an 80 page indictment that would include my wife. Wow. So now I ask you as a husband, I'm married yeah. 28 years. I'm with her 30 years. I'm going to yeah. die with this woman. Right. They know what I was doing. I was doing I was doing what I'm supposed to do. And that's to protect my family. Right. Well, you know, I had what? no choice. I kind of I kind of knew the answer to that um, uh, as you were explaining that, because the news footage on the on the side on the 60 on the 60th Street side of the um, of the Regency, I think um, you were walking with your son. Uh, your young son, uh, you, it was, uh, it must have been summer or spring because you were both in short sleeves and he was completely, um, committed to you in that walk. He was right with you and it was as clear as a bell on television. Yeah. Well, good. I'm, I'm glad, but I do have to say it's not easy on the family and that's sure. part of what, that's part of what has shredded my soul. And, you know, every day I fight to put a smile on my face for them, yeah. you yeah. know, more so even than for myself. But look, yeah. I also understand that you traveled to Israel recently to shoot what many have called a Frenchy comedy series and that you yes. actually loved it. I'm so proud of you, right? So if you would, tell my audience a little bit about the show and what you experienced there. I've never been to Israel and I'm dying, I'm dying to go. How did you okay. find the culture there? And is it very different than our, he, our culture here? It is completely different. So number one, I was never going to go to Israel. I was convinced if I stepped one foot on terra firma Israel, a war would break out. I, was, have, I felt the same I, way. Yeah. Oh, I've my God. Gone. I felt exactly the same, which is why I haven't gone. Yeah. I've been invited on missions and, you know, all expenses. Me too. Now, excuse me. Um, hi, this is my puppy. Can you see my puppy? I do. <laughs> okay. Hello. This is um, Sadie. Hi, Sadie. So I'm invited to do this TV show. Three young people. Two directors, a man and a woman. They're not married. They're just, uh, uh, and the writer producer met in school. Their first job. I'm pretty good with first timers. I, I'm, I must admit, I, I have a good time. I said, no. The government calls and says, we're going to show you Israel. I'm telling you in 10 seconds, I went from no to, okay, so when do I get on the plane? We flew to Israel. It is glorious. The Arabs, the Jews, they, the Yaffa, um, uh, uh, um, Tel Aviv, Jerusalem, the Sea of Galilee. I got stuck in the Dead Sea. My wife, my wife floated like an otter. My foot got <laughs> stuck all the way to China. I couldn't get out. I start screaming. The water has so much salt that it burned the back of my throat. Now I'm yelling and screeching. I had a great time. So the, the, the show is very simple. A young woman engaged to be married in Brooklyn, 
um, a very, very orthodox family. I play the dad. Caroline Aaron from Mrs. Mizell plays my wife, mm -hmm. the mom. She takes off. She leaves. The plans. We're in the middle of planning a wedding. Her, her, her uh, fiancé. And takes off to the wilds of Israel. And that's the first year of the uh, the series, the first uh, episodes. What's what's it called? Hanshi. What's it? Say it again. Yes, I. Uh, no one can pronounce it. Hanshi, which is the name of the girl in oh. the in the show, and you have oh. to have the ha in it. You can't say Hanshi. You got to go Hanshi, and then you get a sore throat. Makes perfect sense to me. You know, yeah. so let me ask you this then. What's your thoughts on the current state of anti-Semitism here in America and then elsewhere? Now, obviously, you you know, look, you probably felt the anti-Semitism as well in in Israel. And me personally, I wish to God that there was a solution, you know, for a two state solution that that to me, you know, I. Again, it's not I can't speak on the topic because I've never been there and I don't understand it. But I do certainly wish that there was. I have friends who are Palestinian. I have friends, dozens and dozens of friends who are Muslim. And I love them the same way I love my Jewish and my Absolutely. Catholic and my Christian friends. And I just wish that there was a way for everyone just to get I, along. I and agree. I want to come back here to America. And I but want to I ask agree, you. I agree with you because everybody deserves if you're going to be on the earth, to live a life on the earth. And, and that, what, this is like, there are three places that God screwed up to me. One is that he created bacon. If it's, you're not supposed to eat bacon, why is there bacon? And why did he make it taste so good? <laughs> That's number one. Number two, <laughs> what? What was he thinking that he could place so much hate in certain people for other people the way that uh, and also the and the third is I wish I could sing. I mean, he, he made he gave so many people the ability to sing. He, he overlooked me when I was in temple when I was younger. I used to knock on the chair in front of me and go, look, I know you're talking to a lot of people today. Just give me a second. <laughs> yeah, I, look, I, there's plenty of things that I, he clearly must have a wicked sense of humor. That's all I can say. But look, I understand, you know, you're liberal, right? Um, but you and I both know that there are lots of quiet conservatives in Hollywood have you ever encountered any prejudice due to your own political views or your religious yeah. beliefs there? I mean, have you ever oh. lost a job or had problems on set because of it? I would have to say no. Uh, now, I don't know if I lost a job um, because of it, but I have never really felt the depth of that kind of um, dislike. No, I, I, I would have to say I would be a liar if I said yes. Uh, you're very fortunate because even here in New York, I literally last week, um, or maybe it was two weeks ago, I was on 62nd uh, Street and 3rd Avenue, and I'm walking over to a meeting, and a guy literally stops his car. And I'm not talking about a junker. It was a, rel it was a relatively brand new BMW. Stops it in the middle of the street in Manhattan on 3rd Avenue. He wants to get out and he wants to fight. 
So I turned around, I stood my ground. I said, I'm going to beg you to do me a big favor and to get back into your car because I'm going to be late for a meeting and I really don't want to hurt you because then I'm going to end up in trouble. I'm still on supervised release. So right. any situation like that puts me in graver you know, danger um, with this fucked up, crazy Department of Justice who's looking what? to do anything you know, okay, to, to do something happened? negative to me. What happened? You said that to him. So and what I, I, I stood there and then he started walking. So I started walking to him and then he backed, you know, he backed up, um, which was which was fine. I would have been just as happy to punch him in the face. You know, I'll be honest. With you, you got me into a fight when I was a kid. Oh, oh, yes, you did. So because you were cool as shit, you were fucking a right. The Fonz. I had to get one of those jackets, one of those bomber jackets. And my mom and my dad, they bought me a bomber jacket. And I was in Cedarhurst at the time, really rough and tough Cedarhurst. But there was a kid who wanted the jacket. And I said to him, can't have it. And I felt like you, right? Um, at, you know, I mean, they are always wearing it was 900 degrees or you're in the water jumping a shark and you're wearing a leather jacket. There was no way I was giving it up. I got cracked in the face, but I broke my hand in his mouth. And, you know, I never lost that jacket. I, I tell you that. You know, I would like to know what happened to it because it was it was great. I mean, you know, it was the same company, I believe, that manufactured it or they were selling it as uh, right, as right. If they did. But yeah. lo and behold, you know, I was not going to back down, you know, to this guy. But I've I've been walking here in Manhattan in the streets and I'll have people scream and yell at me, you know, curse me out, you know, call me a rat, call me all. The First of all, I never ratted. I cooperated. And it's my it's my obligation as a U.S. citizen to cooperate, especially if you're subpoenaed, which right. I was. So, you know, at least for the first, for the first one, I've had people throw um, a bottle at me, you know, here in the city. So I'm actually amazed. I went to go visit my parents who were down in Florida in the right. Boca area. And Do we were at a restaurant. Friend? What's that? Do they live near your friend? No, no. They're in Boca area that my friends in Miami. Um, so it's, it's quite a distance. Anyway, my point is, um, we went out for dinner and then there was one guy there and he could not have been a bigger Michael fan. And of course I thank them for, you know, for support and for their kind words. Cause it does mean a lot to me. Bless and then you. there was another guy who came in right afterwards who hated me. And he starts yelling or trying to get into my face, you know, screaming Trump 2024, Trump 2024. So I said to him, yeah, you know, you know, you keep going. He goes, what'd you say? So I stood up and I said to him, I said, yeah, yeah. And my parents were, you know, please don't, you know, they've seen enough of me, you know, with my, you know, uh, with my fighting over the years, you know, just leave it alone, walk away and so on. Well, I, I made him so uncomfortable that he actually switched his table. <laughs> you know, and you know, you just keep staring at the guy on and on. And I was hoping he was going to come to the table. I actually did. My mom is like, Michael, please, we come here all the time. You know, it's one of our favorite restaurants. And I was like, oh, I'm sorry, Ma. But, you know, I just, I can't, I just couldn't let it go. So I am actually ecstatic, you know, for you that you haven't experienced. Right, Michael, it. since the beginning, since I started being the Fonz, doing the Fonz on, uh, on ABC, People have treated me with such warmth. I was stopped. I'm stopped by phenomenal policemen 
who say, hey, where are you going? Get in. And they take me in their squad car. I've had. Um, uh, oh, I've, been, uh, I've had that happen to me, too. But my hands were behind yeah. my back in cuffs and shackles. Oh, no, but this was <laughs> this was lovely. I, I've had so many incredible um, uh, interactions all over the world because of the character of the fonts. I, I must say, I am so thankful. Well, actually, I mean, the Fonz was a lovable character. And yeah. my all-time favorite one, by the way, just so you know, was yeah. the one where Richie's getting uh, bounced around up and down by a lumberjack who's got to be at least 6'6". You're what? You're about 5'6", right? I mean, six, I, yeah. I got to ask you this question. So, right, 5'6", at the time, I bet you were about a buck 45 wet, right? How is it? I'm, I'm always curious. Now, I love the fact that they take a guy who's 5'6", 145, and you're like the toughest guy in the neighborhood, which I admire. And the fact that you were able to play the role, right, was to me amazing. How, how did that come about? I've always died you know to... It, it is point of view. It is all point of view. Huh. I am not tough. I uh, I am not any longer 145 pounds, but I'm still 5'6". But, you know, you, I just imagined everybody I wanted to be that I wasn't, and I got to do it. And when I changed my voice, it just came out of me like a river. Wow. It's called being a great actor. We've got a very different kind of sponsor for this episode, The Jordan Harbinger Show, a podcast you should definitely check out since you're a fan of high-quality, fascinating podcasts hosted by interesting people. The show covers such a wide range of topics through weekly interviews with heavy-hitting guests. And there are a ton of episodes you'll find interesting since you're a fan of this show, so I'd recommend our listeners check it out. I also recommend our listeners check out Jordan's conversations with Michael McFall about what it's like to stand up to Putin and Oliver Bullock. He talks about why thieves and crooks run the world, both amazing episodes. There's an episode for everyone, though, no matter what you're into. The show covers stories like how a professional art forger somehow made millions of dollars while being chased by the feds and the mafia. Jordan's also done an episode all about birth control and how it can alter the partners we pick and how going on or off the pill can change elements of our personalities. The podcast covers a lot, but one constant is his ability to pull useful pieces of advice from his guests. I promise you, you'll find something useful that you can apply to your own life, whether it's an actionable routine change that boosts your productivity, or just a slight mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. We really enjoy the show, and we think you will as well. There's just so much here, so check out jordanharbinger.com forward slash start for some episode recommendations, or search for The Jordan Harbinger Show, that's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. So then let me ask you this question, how in your opinion... Can the entertainment industry positively influence the current political landscape? Or do you think that there's even a place in Hollywood for political beliefs? Me personally, I think sometimes when they're doing these shows, like the Oscars, I don't like the fact that everybody gets up and it becomes a political shit show. Because 
I'm sure that some folks feel like we should judge actors and, you know, and the like by their talents and storytelling and not by their political views. I got to stop you because that is another thing that just makes me so angry. I'm an American. I'm a man. I'm an actor by profession. I am educated. I have a point of view about the life that goes on in my country. What, because I'm an actor, doesn't make that any more, any, uh, well, how is that less than than somebody else's uh, point of view, uh, who is a candlestick maker, a plumber, a butcher, a doctor? Uh, you know, when they say stay in your lane, uh, that makes me insane. Yeah. I mean, listen, it's fully understandable, you know, but I will tell you that I was surprised that more stars didn't come out in favor of abortion rights. I mean, particularly, you know, in Georgia, where abortion is banned after six weeks. You know, Bob Iger, you know, the former Disney CEO, he said publicly not that it would former. be hard. Not for Bob, not for oh, that's right. He that's he right. Went, He's now that's he right. Back. He's back. That's Does right. I let He's, the other guy go. That's right. So he said publicly that it would be hard to film in Georgia if the law ever took effect. But last I checked, the ban is still on and they're still filming in Georgia. Now, I don't hold Bob Iger responsible for this. I understand their tax breaks and incentives and so on. And the sets already built. But are there any you have any ideas on how consumers can push Hollywood a little bit to put their money where their mouths are? Because in all fairness, Athletes, celebrities, actors, you know, um, film stars, they have a voice that is so necessary in order to sort of fill the masses. You know what it is? I'll tell you what it is. You use your voice in your vote. And you, Amen. you and you have to take your responsibility very seriously and you have to stand like they did in Georgia in the rain and you have to stand there for hours and you have to do it. And no matter what they tried to do to diminish the number of votes that they had, they couldn't stop America from doing the one thing that is our uh, responsibility and our right. Well, you know, I wanted to ask you a question since we were talking about happy days and so on. I remember that there's, you know, because I saw it again on uh, YouTube. Somebody put it up there that there was a scene in one of the episodes of Fonzie dancing Hava Nagila yes. uh, on, on one of the episodes. Now, Fonzie was not a Jewish Italian American, right? I mean, how did, could you just tell me? Because I saw it and I thought it was so freaking funny. You know, because it's so out of character, right? I'll tell you exactly. Sixth grade, my parents take me to Madison Square Garden. I see the Musayev National Ballet Company, where they do the Kazatsky, where it is all of that mm -hmm. um, uh, acrobatic, phenomenal ballet. I, I can't breathe. I go home <laughs> and I teach myself a bastardized version of the Kazatsky. And I mean, just the worst. But now I do it at temple dances, at school dances. And I'm good at it. 
Uh, and there's a little clip of me doing it now as a more mature man. Uh, I I danced, uh, you know, I, I even bastardized it more on Jimmy Fallon's show. But I told Gary Marshall, I can do this. And they put it into the show. And that's where it came from. The sixth grade and thinking, I've got to be able to do this one day. <laughs> I guarantee I would love to see the outtakes on it or, you know, the and so on. I bet everybody was just cracking up. Was it like a fun set? Was it a fun group of people? Or was, you know, because some of them, you speak to some actors. By the way, I hold the SAG card. I don't know if you know that, but I do. I hold the SAG card. Um a lot of people turn and say, well, you know, it's all business. You know, there's, it, it's not, um, it's not really fun. We don't sit in kibitz with each other before not and true. after scenes. Not true. It all depends on the people you're with. And I'm very lucky that the sets that I've been on have been incredibly entertaining because the personalities have been so amazing. Uh, on happy days, uh, Gary Marshall, we played softball every Sunday, uh, against another show or a, a talent agency or, um, whoever would play ball with us. And then we traveled for the, um, for the army all over the world. Happy days against the soldiers in Kohlberg, Germany. We flew to these small towns. Uh, we had the best time. Let me ask you this other question. When you were in Israel, were you widely recognized? Yes. Unbelievable, uh, right? I am. Well, first of all, my books are there. Hank Zipser is translated into Hebrew. Happy Days was very big, and they couldn't get over that the Fonz was Jewish. Did you know the Fonz was Jewish? It made all of these um, uh, Israelis so proud, you know. Um, but I am, I'm known, I don't know if, if now, but I was known all over the world, no matter where I went. People, uh, I took my family to um, uh, New Mexico, where the Native Americans watch television by attaching their TV to their car battery. That was their electricity. And because I was respectful to Native Americans as the Fonz, they baked bread for us. That's what wow. they could give us. I Overwhelming. Overwhelming. Wow. So let me ask you one final question, because as the hour, as I told you, goes by real quickly. Yeah. You know, you've had one hell of a career, like I said, since 1974 with your first movie. And basically, you've continued to work, you know, ever since. I mean, it almost seems like you don't stop. You've obviously earned a great deal of success. What advice can you give to young people who are trying to make it in the industry? And not just, you know what, let's expand on, not just in the entertainment industry, but in any field. Because my belief is that if you could make it, in entertainment, if you can make it on Wall Street, if you can make it as a doctor, whatever your profession, you can make it in others. So what kind of advice would you give? And what are your hopes for the future of young America? Okay. So one, I would say to, the, to anybody who's listening, know what you want without ambivalence. 
It doesn't matter what that might be. Whatever it is, you decide, I know from my center, this is what I want. And then you go for it. You know, there is, uh, I was a negative thinker. And I would be walking to my dream and a negative thought, I won't, I can't come into my head. I, I read an amazing sentence. Don't put a period on the end of a negative thought because it will just grow. A negative thought comes into your mind. You say, I'm sorry, out loud. I've got no time for you now. Replace it with a, neg- uh, with a positive. And all of a sudden, you continue walking to your dream. Train yourself in what you, um, uh, what your life is going to be so that you can walk through any door the second it creaks open even an inch. Preparation, will, and gratitude that we are on the earth. Your gratitude will give you an outlook that will make everything seem wonderful. No truer words. So, Henry, let me thank you so much for joining oh, me and my, my great, listeners. Michael. as we start. I really, truly appreciate it. I appreciate you um, in so many different ways. Your, you know, inspirational, your, you know, your kindness, um, your experience, your wisdom. I can only just say thank you and, um, Hope to see you soon. Ah, uh, you know what? Me too. And tell tell Mrs. C that uh, you're <laughs> a Mrs. C. <laughs> huh? <laughs> you didn't even think about that one, Mrs. Cunningham. Yeah, well, but Mrs. Uh, uh, but uh, you know, tell tell your um, your wife that you are able to put up a post-it on the mirror for um, and make a deal with her for only six months. Deal. I will do that, and I will send a photo. I will send you a photo. <laughs> yes, and put pride in red, and you start understanding what it is you've accomplished, not just what you're going through. Well, again, I thank you, and I look forward to um, see. I, I really do. I look forward to seeing you soon. To give my best to your family. Thank you. And now for today's mea culpa. I don't know who said it, but fucking Matt Getz and his little friend Lauren Bobert and Andy Biggs and the whole Never Kevin Five are ungovernable pricks who should be cast out of Congress now and forever. In fact, I still don't even know why Matt Gates isn't in jail. As long as there are MAGA extremists running the show in Washington, every garden variety MAGA asshat is going to feel just fine about everything. Everything from Charlottesville to the insurrection. Why? Because they are represented by deplorables just like themselves. It makes me fucking sick. I'd like to blame Trump for these morons rise to power, but sadly, it goes deeper than that. Like Trump, they've got fans who just love the way they think and the way they act, disrupt, fuck the rules, embrace racism, sexism, and all the rest. Why? Because their America is frozen in like the 1950s snow globe and they just can't get out. They are stuck in the land before time when men were men and women were your mother, your little wife, or your stupid fucking side piece. Marjorie Taylor Greens and Lauren Boebert, they're like their cheerleaders and Elisa Stefanik is just the best teacher in school. 
But don't kid yourself for a second, ladies. You are all supporting players. The star of this bad high school musical happening on the house floor is motherfucking Matt Gates. Watching him gesticulate and say words that make no sense is like watching the community theater version of Mr. Smith Goes to Washington without any of the charm, with no substance or anything of any value whatsoever. It's also painful that I'd rather watch television commercials for fucking foot powder or jock itch or repeat them than see another moment of Matt Gates masturbating on the floor of the House of Representatives. Like I said before, Gates should be in jail, and not just for raping an underage girl, but for his performance this week. Okay, so he hates Kevin McCarthy. Who the fuck doesn't? But the asinine rambling about God only knows what. It's just like a car horn blaring. But seriously, I'd rather stick needles in my eyes or have punji sticks shoved under my nails than watch Matt Gates fawn over his bully boyfriend, Jim Jordan who, by the way, suddenly looks like he's about a million years old because he knows indictments are coming. So Gates, you fucking idiot, I mean, he goes ahead and he nominates Jordan for Speaker of the House and Jordan doesn't even want the job. Then Gates nominates Trump and he was the only one who voted for him. So thank you, Matt, for being the one and only vote for Trump, you dumbass. But then Gates goes back and then he nominates Jordan again, who still doesn't want the fucking job. So why not just buckle up, Buttercup, and vote for McCarthy? I mean, Gates got all pissed off because McCarthy already moved into the Speaker's office. I mean, so? Go fight him, punch him in the fucking face, but shut the fuck up. It was always going to be McCarthy, and if by some miracle McCarthy dropped dead or didn't get the job, then, you know, look, it is what it is. We all knew McCarthy was going to ultimately get it. He just was going to wear them down. And why? Why, Gates? Listen, it's because he already had 90% and you and your little gang were just interfering. So the terrible truth is, none of it mattered. It was just showboating, a clusterfuck for clusterfuck's sake. Bullshit, time-wasting antics that as the world watched burns our nation's credibility to the ground. So fuck you, Matt Gates, and all the other insurrectionists that are still in the house today. That's Marjorie Taylor Greene, Bober Biggs, Jordan, of course, Louis the Jerkoff Gomert, I mean, Perry Gosar, I mean, and then the new kid, Eli Crane. I mean, that little jerk was on Steve Bannon's fucking podcast, crowing about how the MAGAs are owning the Dems now that he's in Congress. What? Shut the fuck up. And now, don't get me started about that fat little jerk off George Santos who flashed the far right finger sign like he's some fucking gang member when he was voting for the Speaker of the House of Representatives of the United States of America. I mean, who the fuck does that? Who? They do. These assholes holding the People's House hostage are a gang. And if they're stuck in the 50s, I'd like to go back to the Old West and shoot them all. And most importantly, as always, thanks for listening. Mea Culpa is brought to you by Audio Up, Midas Touch, and LSJ Media. Written by Jimmy Jelinek and Paula Killen. Our editor and managing producer is Lisa Orkin. Our executive producers are Jared Gustad, Jimmy Jelinek, and myself, Michael Cohen, along with Phil Alberstadt. It may be a new day politically, but nowadays the landscape is more confusing than ever. Donald Trump may have lost the battle for the presidency, but in many ways, Trumpism is still winning the war on the state and local level. 
Mea culpa is here to help guide you through the wilderness and keep you informed. And let's face it, we all want Trump, Rudy, and the rest of these seditious traitors to see justice. And folks, I promise you, it's coming. So stay tuned as I guide you through the twists and turns of the criminal process that will ultimately see them behind bars. Mea culpa, nothing but the truth. Oh, <laughs>